morning, everyone. It's lovely to be with you here this morning. Welcome to One. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim Holman. I have the privilege of being the senior minister here. Um, and as we continue our Amplify series, I want to jump straight in. And uh, I'm, this morning, I'm going to be talking about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus and to enter a life of discipleship. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So let's read Matthew 16, 21 to 27. It's on the screen. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So how do we have the concerns of God? This is Jesus' answer, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory and with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, I, I ask that this morning we would hear your voice clearly. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. And I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, strengthened, challenged this morning, and that, Lord, you would lead us, just as Jesus says in this passage in Matthew, into a life of discipleship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, I remember when I was a young teenage Christian, I was still in high school, and I read the book of Acts for the first time, all the way through. And if you ever read the book of Acts, it's quite a book. There's a lot of amazing stories what the early church got up to in the power of God. These courageous men and women filled with the fire of the Spirit, going around preaching the gospel, trusting in the power and provision of God, healing the sick, casting out demons, praying like their lives depended on it, because it often did, starting riots, being beaten, thrown into prison, laying down their lives, and seeing hundreds, thousands of people radically changed by Jesus. And that was just on a slow day. And I remember thinking at the time, as many young people do when they read the Bible for themselves for the first time, wow, what has happened to the church? Because I've been going to church my whole life. This is what I was thinking at the time, and I have never seen anything like that. And why don't we do that stuff anymore? And I felt like there was this whole element to Christianity that I had never seen or even heard about. So I'd ask my leaders, why don't we see going on today what we read about in the book of Acts? 
and they'd give me pat theological or sociological answers that tried to explain away the powerlessness of the church, and it all sounded very reasonable, but somehow it left a really bad taste in my mouth. Left me wondering if we were actually practicing the same religion as those early disciples. Now, I was reading recently Russell Moore, who's editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, in an article called Losing Our Religion, and he talks about the loss of young people from the church, uh, which he's writing, of course, from a US perspective, but this is true across the whole Western world, including Australia. And here's just a taste of what he writes in the article. Next slide. Many of us have observed, anecdotally, a hemorrhaging of younger Christians from churches in recent years. What seems different about this quiet exodus is that the departures are heightened not among the peripheries of the church, those nominal or cultural Christians who grow up to rebel against their parents' beliefs, but instead among those who are the most committed to what were previously thought to be the hardest aspects of Christian religion, belief in the supernatural, the truth of the scriptures, and the rigorous demands of discipleship. Where a de-church, to use an anachronistic term, uh, or evangelical, to use another, in the early 1920s was likely to have walked away due to the fact that she found the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection to be outdated and superstitious, or because he found the outmoded strict moral code too restrictive, now we see a markedly different and jarring model of a disillusioned person. According to a recent Gallup poll, young Christians are walking away not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself no longer believes what the church teaches. Wow. And he goes on to ask, what happens when people reject the church because they think we reject Jesus and the gospel? If people leave the church because they want to gratify the flesh with abandon, such has always been the case, that's one problem. But if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they've read the Bible and have come to the conclusion that the church itself disapproves of Jesus. That's a crisis. That is a crisis, absolutely. I wonder if we disapprove of Jesus here at One. Uh, have we become good at saying the right things, saying the right words, but our hearts are far from him? I mean, do we still believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation? Do we still believe that Jesus is the only hope for this hurting world? And boy, is the world hurting right now. Do we really believe that Jesus is the only answer to the problems facing this world? Do we still believe that the call to come and follow him is the most, the most important decision that you will ever make in your life, more than your marriage, more than your money, more than your career, more than a comfortable retirement? Do we still believe that the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and, this, and it's this amazing, powerful dimension of God's creativity and life crashing into the world and upending the status quo, pulling down the systematic powers and principalities of the demonic and defeating the systems of death? Do we still believe that the invitation to join and enter this kingdom should lead to a life of purpose and power and discipline and love and forgiveness and joy? Do we still believe that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are the two most important events in human history? 
Do we still believe that as men and women filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, alive and moving in us, that this should make a difference to how we feel, to how we act, to what we choose, to how we love, to what we believe is possible with our ordinary lives? Do we still believe these things? Now, I eventually spoke to my youth pastor at the time, a great man. He's actually now the uh, leader of the Vineyard Movement in Australia, Kurt Delaney. And I spoke to him about how I was feeling because I was just about ready to walk away. This moment was a bit of a last resort for me, really. I was baptized. I'd come to faith in Jesus a couple of years earlier. I believed in Jesus. I just wasn't sure that my church did. And yes, there were some wonderful and loving people in my church, but in my youthful zeal, I was really frustrated. And I think I still am. My youth pastor listened to me, and then he spoke my love language. He gave me a book. (laughs) Uh, And that book changed my life, and I have it here. This is the copy he gave me, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit by Jack Deere. And I devoured this book. I sat down and I read it, I devoured it, um, because it opened my eyes to something, that uh, the reality, in fact, that this kind of dynamic, spirit-filled life that we read about in the book of Acts, uh, and the kind of discipleship that Jesus calls us to as men and women filled with his spirit, which he talks about in Matthew 16, is still happening. It's still happening in the West, and increasingly so, all around the world as we just heard about from Sherwin this morning. Praise God for what he's doing in the Philippines. Praise God for what we've heard uh, of what God is up to in Indonesia uh, and in all over the world, the places that we support as a community, the discipleship that is happening there in those other places. Now, Jack Deere was a professor of theology at a very conservative uh, seminary in the United States, and he was a cessationist, which means he didn't believe that the gifts of the Spirit are available to the church anymore, that that ended once we had the scriptures after the apostolic age. That was until he himself had an encounter with the power of God and saw the gifts of the Spirit at work in his own life. And that upended his whole world and it cost him his job. So not long after finishing this book and hearing about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be a disciple in the power of the Holy Spirit, I began to pray that God would fill me with his power so I could live the life that he was calling me to. Uh, And at 17, alone in my bedroom, I had an encounter with God that turned me inside out. And just the other day, in fact, I was talking to one of our young adults about this, and I began to weep just a little bit. Even to this day, the memory of what I experienced in my bedroom nearly 30 years ago. That tells you something. (laughs) Of the majesty And the glory and the power of God in that moment can still bring me to tears. I stood on holy ground and I encountered the presence of the living God and it changed me. Now up to that day, I believed in Jesus and I wanted more. After that day, I became a disciple of Jesus. And when I was in London earlier this year, I went to a prayer meeting with hundreds of young people from all over the city 
mostly Gen Z and millennials, crying out to God, worshiping, asking the Lord to help them, to fill them with his power, that they might be faithful men and women, proclaiming the good news, living for Jesus. It was awesome, it was holy ground. Friends, God is moving in power, just as he always has, and there is something, I think, stirring again in our cities and in this city. And I don't say this lightly because I'm not a revivalist preacher, but I do believe God is getting ready to do something powerful in the church in the West. We have been lukewarm for too long. We are at, I believe, a crossroads. And I'm starting to see young people all around this city and all around the world beginning to pray that God would move again and reawaken His church to what is possible in the kingdom of God. Sorry. <laughs> this seems to happen a lot. Now here's the thing, because I don't wanna be misunderstood on this point. It's not about whether the power of God is available to the church. It always has been, it always is, and it will always be. The issue is, friends, whether we are prepared to live in accordance with that power. For the power of God is not first and foremost about power to work miracles or use spiritual gifts or cast out demons or have amazing experiences in God's presence. No, it is first and foremost about power to be disciples. It is power to abide in Christ and power to do His will, to take up our cross and follow Him. And sometimes that involves incredible sacrifice. Sometimes it's not fun. That's why Peter says to Jesus, this will never happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the thoughts of God in mind, but you're concerned with the world. So in other words, it's power to live what we believe is true. And let me drop on you what I think is one of the most challenging things Jesus ever said. Matthew 7, 21. In my Bible, it's titled, True and False Disciples. And this is what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Did you catch that? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Just saying, Lord, Lord, is not enough. Just having power is not enough. We must do the will of God. That's what Jesus says, we must do the will of God. We must walk with Jesus and do his will. That's what a disciple is. It's the same thing Jesus says in Matthew 16. At the very end of the passage we read, Jesus says that all will be judged according to what they have done, whether they really took up their cross and followed him. Does this contradict the doctrines of grace, that we're saved only by faith through grace and not by works? Not at all. The problem for post the post-Reformation church, which is what we are, is that we have made that one doctrine, justification by faith, as important and as central as it is, we've made it everything. 
But an overemphasis on grace in this sense has actually paralyzed us. And here's what Dallas Willard says. We are not only saved by grace, we are paralyzed by it. We have been taught that grace means you can do nothing to be saved. Such thinking has been extended to you can do nothing to have spiritual growth. So spiritual transformation occurs according to this thinking in one of two ways, inspiration or information. Inspiration means that in one golden moment, one great experience, you will be transformed. I don't wanna criticize experience. I have had many wonderful experiences with God, as have I, but they don't transform you. The other view, information, is that uh, is the means whereby you pour truth into your head and suddenly you're transformed. Inspiration isn't gonna do it and information isn't going to do it. The only way human character is transformed with grace is by discipline and activity, right? And we're warned about this in the New Testament. Don't be puffed up with a whole bunch of knowledge that you can't actually put into action. It's better that you know a little bit and you are faithful with what you know than you know a lot and you have no idea what to do with any of it. Not inspiration or information, though both of those things are incredibly helpful. I'm not saying, I don't think it's Dallas is saying, and I'm certainly not saying this morning that those things aren't helpful and important. Of course they are. It's just that they don't transform us. I wasn't transformed by my experience of God when I was 17 in my bedroom. I was just given inspiration and power in that moment to then get on with living a transformed life. It was the beginning of something, not the whole of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? It set me on a journey. It opened the door to a new way of living. It wasn't the change, it was the beginning of the change. No, we need experiences of God, amen. We need experiences of God to encourage us and inspire us and help us, and God gives us those. But that is not the same thing as being transformed by the power of God. That's something that we do in partnership with God by obedience and activity. So likewise, I've had a pretty good theological education I've been to one of the greatest seminaries in the world. I've sat under some of the greatest teachers of this generation. But the information I received is useless if I don't do something with it. God's grace is not just about acceptance, but transformation. God's grace says that we are accepted in order that we might be changed. Are you with me? God is gracious because he meets us where we are so he can take us somewhere else. As James 2.24 says, next slide, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And all of that is a work of God's grace. And this is the end of James' famous article, you know, faith without works is dead. And he says this, a person is not considered, uh, sorry, is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And so Dallas goes on to say, next slide, grace is God acting in our lives to bring about what we do not deserve and cannot accomplish on our own. But we are not passive in this process. Grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. So today, as we finish out our mission month, our Amplify series, and thank you to everyone who's contributed financially so far, as we thought what, about what it means for us as a community to amplify the grace and power and love of God into the world. I have a question I wanna ask you this morning, which I'd like you to think about. Next slide. How would you answer this question? 
She, he is a Christian who? Dot, dot, dot. How would you answer that question? How would you finish that sentence? I wish I had some elevator music or something. Just give us a few seconds to think about that. All right. She, he is a Christian who dot, dot, dot. What immediately comes to mind? What is the evidence of someone who is a Christian that you would point to? All right, so here's how one of the greatest minds of the Christian faith, St. Augustine, who lived in the third and fourth centuries, very early on, this is what he said in answer to that question. He, she is a true Christian who is merciful to all, who does not get angry for an injury, who gives aid to the poor, who suffers with the afflicted, who feels sympathy for the miserable, who is a stranger to harshness, who avoids undue strictness, who is patient in the face of injury, who practices self-restraint with pleasure, who speaks words of love to those who speak evil, who does not ignore those in need, who never envies those who prosper, who does not laugh at their neighbour in the pit, who extends a hand to those who have fallen, who is never selfish with compassion, who reconciles those who are angry with each other, who brings harmony between those at odds, who is joyful in the joy of others, who weeps with those who weep, who raises up the fallen, who reproves sin without wrath, who encourages the weak, who makes the bad good by their goodness. Now, is that how you answered that question? <laughs> That's quite a list. How are you doing with those? It is challenging. It's a bit of a kick in the butt, really. And what struck me as I was reading it is how little he focuses on belief um, and how much it sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if I was to, you know, join the dots there, I think what Augustine is doing is actually just extrapolating on what we learn in the Sermon on the Mount. And because this is pretty much what the Sermon on the Mount calls us to, now we're going to do some studies in the Sermon on the Mount next year because it's probably the most important uh, of body of teaching that has ever been given at any time in all of human history and which has shaped human history more than any other body of teaching that I can think of. Uh, and in that sermon, most of Jesus' teaching is, is exactly this. It's about how we are called to live, what we're called to do as we follow him, and it says very little about what we are called to believe, which reminded me of something I saw on the socials re recently, which was a quote from a progressive Christian author um, critiquing the Nicene Creed, and this is what he wrote, if I can read this. Consider the remarkable fact, this remarkable fact. In the Sermon on the Mount, there is not a single word about what to believe, only words about what to do and how to be. By the time the Nicene Creed is written, only three centuries later, there is not a single word in it about what to do and how to be, only words about what to believe. Now, this is a pretty standard move by many progressive Christians, pitting right belief and right action against each other. I mean, the subtext here is, doesn't really matter what you believe, the important thing is how you live or even to suggest that worrying too much about right belief is actually a hindrance to right action. And then they give you often a list of things that we should all be doing, and the minute you do that, the minute you start naming what you think is correct ethical behaviour, you are doing that on the basis of a set of beliefs that inform that ethical behaviour. Are you with me? So it's just sleight of hand. And to say that the Nicene Creed is somehow invalid on that basis is like saying, well, the dictionary is stupid because it doesn't tell a story. 
It only gives you the definitions of words. What's the use of that? But it's a category error. The Nicene Creed was written to address heretical beliefs about the identity of Christ. It was never intended to replace the Scriptures, and least of all the Sermon on the Mount, or somehow denigrate the importance of faithful, thoughtful obedience. Why am I saying all of this? I'm saying all of this because today we are talking about how we are called to live. But in doing so, I want to affirm that this should never take away from the importance of understanding as clearly as we can what it is we believe. I will never teach that. I, will, I pray in the grace of God, I will never pit those things against one another. But Dallas Willard is right. Information alone does not transform us. It's helpful, but it doesn't transform us. What we believe about Jesus and what we believe about the gospel will, of course, inform our actions. And that's essential. Right belief is only part of what's important, though. It's a doorway to something greater, to guide us into a dynamic life of faithfulness and obedience and love as we walk with Jesus and seek to amplify his character in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts can we say that together? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, faith is not blind faith in whatever. It is faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is faith in the lordship of Jesus. It is faith in the promises of the scriptures. But it must be expressed if it's gonna count. It must lead us to action, to faithful obedience. So hence the Sermon on the Mount, and hence Augustine kicking our butts with this incredible picture of what a person looks like who has been made perfect in love as they walk with Jesus. Now, don't think of it as a checklist. I'm gonna go back to what Augustine says. You shouldn't think of that as a checklist, but as a vision, a vision to inspire you to love and good deeds. It's a picture of what a person who's been fully formed in the character and the love of Christ looks like as they move through this world. That's what we're seeing here. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is, a picture of what it looks like to be a human being fully alive in the power and the love of God and expressing that faithfully into the world. And as I think about Augustine's list and the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus calls us to here uh, in terms of a life of discipleship, I mean, it strikes me that it doesn't really matter what you do in terms of your career. You can be a teacher or a lawyer or a homemaker or a tradie or a pilot or an engineer, um, regardless of the context. Or you could even be a pastor, God forbid. Um, you can bring the life and presence of Jesus into everything you do because the context is just the place in which God has put you in order for you to serve those around you in the power of the Spirit by acts of love and good deeds. Are you with me? And you can do that anywhere. Regardless of what your career might be, you can offer that to the world. You have people around you, no doubt, that you can love 
people that you can help, people that you can serve, people that you can encourage, people that you can pray for. This is where it begins, us turning away from ourselves and our, and our own interests and looking to the interests of others and beginning to pray, Lord, what would you have me do in this context for those people that you've placed around me? I am your priest here. In your law practice, you are a priest. You know, in your engineering firm, you are a priest. At home, you are a priest. In the classroom, you're a priest. On the job site, you're a priest. It's the priesthood of all believers called to magnify and amplify the power and the love of God wherever He has placed us because where you are is where God has sent you. And you need to believe that. It's not incidental. Where you are today is where God has sent you and He wants you to serve Him there faithfully. And that's what a disciple is. I'm gonna just skip forward a few pages here for the interest of time. But a disciple, as many of you will know, is the closest equivalent we have of this concept in English is to say that we are an apprentice. We are an apprentice to the way of Jesus. We have been called to be with him. What is, it, what is an, a disciple? A disciple is someone who's called to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus does. That's it, that's what a disciple is. Someone called to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus does. And so where he's sent you is where he wants you to do what he does. But he wants you, as Dallas Willard says, to think about how to live your life as, as if Jesus would live your life if he were you. Did that make sense? That's how Dallas Willard defines the call of discipleship, to learn how to live your life as if Jesus were living your life. Where you are with the people you're surrounded with in the career that he's placed you in, with the resources you have, this is your call. This is your context. This is where you are to be a disciple. And this is no good fantasizing about maybe if my circumstances were different or if I was somewhere else, then I could really be a faithful Christian. That's a lie from the devil. You've gotta work out how to be a faithful Christian right where you are today. And you can only do that with the help of God. You can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why all these things need to work together. Our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of scripture, our call that, we, that each of us have received to follow Jesus where we are, and then help from the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do it, who gives us what we don't naturally have. This is the grace of God, supernatural power so we can be the men and women we've been called to be where God has placed us. All right, I'm gonna invite um, Paula to come on up as we prepare for communion. And I wanna leave you with this. Jesus, this call to discipleship is hard, no question. I think G.K. Chesterton once said that uh, the Christian faith has not been found, uh, what did he say, I have it written down here somewhere. I should have memorized this. The Christian faith has not been tried and found wanting it has been found difficult and left untried. I like that. But the thing is, it is difficult. In fact, it's impossible. It's impossible. But this is why Jesus said, if we can go to uh, Matthew, just skip forward a few slides. I'll tell you when to stop, sorry. Yes, Matthew 11. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Now, it may seem hard to lay down your life, but in doing so, you will save it. You will find it. By laying down your life, Jesus joins himself, as he says here in Matthew 11, he joins himself to you. He joins himself to us. He yokes himself to us. And so then joined with him, he takes us forward into this awesome adventure of faith and obedience that we've been called to. See, obedience is not just about effort. It's actually mostly about surrender. Surrender your life, you'll find it. Hand over your life to Christ. He'll give you what you need to do his will. So we offer our bodies and our minds and our hearts and God gives us himself. He gives us his power. He gives us his presence. What I've found in life is that it's only hard when we're constantly fighting against the call of Jesus, kind of struggling and straining against this yoke that he's placed on us. I wanna go this way. And Jesus is like, no, we're going over here. But no, no, really, Jesus, come on, over here. This is where the good stuff is. No, we're going over here. And you're straining against the call of God and you're straining against the yoke of Christ. If you just surrender and say, Lord, I give myself to you, lead me where you want, then it will be easy because now it's up to him. All you have to do is walk with him, follow him. And so you end up in a place of peace and rest and joy rather than straining and chafing and exhausted and burned out and angry. We have to let go and we have to let God. Or as John Mark Comer says, last slide, Jesus is not looking for converts to Christianity. He's looking for apprentices to the kingdom of God. Amen to that, amen to that. Praise God.